Luke 9. Um, coming to a, another section in the book of Luke uh, about the story of a father whose son was demon-possessed and he came to Jesus. And I uh, entitled the talk tonight, Help My Unbelief, and we're going to be getting to that later. What does it mean to believe? You hear verses about having faith? You probably could quote a lot of them. Verses like this one, for example. All things are possible to one who believes. Matthew 21. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, which was causing it to wither up and die, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Or, James also has things to say about faith. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Heard that one? We like to pull that one out at anointing services and things like that. Uh, James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. What does it mean to ask in faith? What does it mean to have faith? And like I said earlier, what does it mean to believe? Okay. So think of something that looks impossible to you. Maybe the future is really uncertain which is where I currently find myself. Because we, um, last June, I believe it was, told Mountain View that we would, or told the board that we would like to move home in the summer of 2024. And here we are with no replacements and not knowing what's going to happen. So that looks kind of big. Or maybe it's something that uh, you're struggling with or doing or whatever it might be that you can't conquer. What do we do with that? What do you do when you don't have what it takes to move your mountain? Because we love to read verses like these, and yet every time we read them, we sit there and we're like, I'm not so sure that's true. Don't we? Because there's always times where there's a gap. There's always times. There's, there's always times, there's almost always times in our lives where there's a gap between what we read in our Bibles and what we're experiencing in reality. Right? Many people have wrestled with these questions over the centuries. What do we do when God's promises seem broken? That's questions like, what's going wrong with life? That it's going so badly for me. And religion has tried to answer those questions. And it's generally come out, especially Christianity, has come out in one of two places when it comes to the problem of things not turning out the way that we think Scripture tells us they're going to turn out. And what religion tries to do is give us answers. And answers can be okay, but they generally try to make it the fault of one of two sets of people or two beings. So here's the first uh, idea that comes up with, and I would say this is probably by far, at least in my experience, by far the most common one that I've run across, is, okay, so who's at fault? 
Well, the first answer is easy. It's God's fault. Now, we wouldn't say that it's God's fault, but we say things like this. Well, it's the sovereignty of God. And we chalk things up to, well, that's just the sovereignty of God. God has planned that for your life. And because he has planned it, even though it's hard, we know that he's in control and that all things work together for good. There was a, just reading a book um, earlier this week, uh, Kelly, Sari, Sari, sorry, Sarah Clarkson, I was going to say Kelly Clarkson, but I don't control the books. Um, some of you got that. I my hats off to the rest of you who didn't. Um, Kelly Clarkson is a woman who struggled a lot with OCD, and she wrote a great little book called This Beautiful Truth. And in that book, she recounts the story of a devastating church split that they were going through when she was a little girl, and her family was moving. And somebody, she overheard somebody telling her mom um, something to the effect of, I know this is difficult, but it's almost hard for me to feel sorry for you because I know that this is God's will for your life, and he's just going to work this out for good. That's the, the determinist way of looking at things. Everything that goes wrong that we don't understand, well, that's obviously just God's will, and so that's my way of, I don't know, controlling the situation by just tossing it all in God's lap and saying, well, that's what he pulls off, so I guess we just have to trust him. Just get over it already. The other person that religion offers to find at fault is me. And instead of making it God's problem, they make all the problems my problem. Because, after all, Jesus said that if we ask in faith with nothing wavering, then he'll give us what we ask. And if we're not getting what we ask for, it must mean that the problem lies with me. I don't have enough faith. Or there must be some sin in my life that's keeping healing from happening. Or... Well, God is faithful. We know God is faithful. We know that God always is faithful and that he said in his word, I can show you the verses, that uh, if we ask in faith without doubting that he'll give us what we ask for. And so, therefore, if you're not getting what you're asking for, the problem then lies with you. You just don't have enough faith. So whatever's going on is not God's fault. It's somehow mine. I remember uh, Jordan Peterson uh, telling a story of when he was a I believe it was while he was in college, he was visiting a hospital, part of his work, and he gets on the, the he's, he's on the elevator, and this lady comes on on one of the floors, and she had just gotten a really bad medical diagnosis. I don't remember if he said exactly what was going on, but it was a devastating uh, medical diagnosis for her, and this lady in front of him in the elevator is going over her life, trying to figure out what she did wrong to deserve the catastrophe that she had just encountered. Now, if you're a smoker and you now have lung cancer, there's an obvious correlation between what you did and what is happening now. But can you imagine if everything that bad that happened in your life, you decided was somehow your fault and you deserved it? That's where she was going with that. So we either try to blame God or we try to blame ourselves. We say, well, it's always got to be somebody's fault. Either it's God's or it's mine. I just need to have more faith. Now, if you figure out how to have more faith, 
I'd like to know how to do it. Like, do you just sit there and you're like, and you work it up somehow? Like, just my beloved cousin was speaking in front of a group of CBS students one day, and he said something about, um, I'm going to share a thought. <laughs> you see what he did, he shared his thought. He did not speak it, but the rest of us, he shared it. Um, I don't know how you just drum it up, drum it up. But somehow that's what we expect, right? If we're going to say, well, the problem is that you don't have enough faith, that doesn't really leave us with an answer, does it? It just leaves us with guilt. And the problem with both of these ways of looking at things, or so I should say, looking at things exclusively that, well, this is just the sovereignty of God, or I must have done something wrong. Both of those answers rob us of the ability to struggle with what's happening. Because if it's God's sovereignty, and I struggle with that, obviously I'm not surrendered to the will of God. And if it's my fault, and I'm struggling with it, obviously I'm not surrendered to the will of God. There's not room for the wrestling that happens, or that should happen. Where does faith come from? Sorry, I, when I wrote that in my notes, I thought of Faith Hogstabler and making a joke about that. And I had to laugh about it now in front of you, so I'm sorry. Um, I don't know where faith comes from. Where does faith come from? So right now at Mountain House. <laughs> 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 really applies to somebody else. Uh, right now at Mountain View, we are struggling to replace a number of positions. Department heads, staffing, and Lord willing, sometime in the next decade we'll find another subship leader. And recruiting has been kind of lousy. And I'm sorry, not a reflection on the current group of staff. I'm saying it's hard to get commitments right now. And <laughs> and um, we can look back over the last two and a half years or two and a half plus years since I got here and see that we've been here before. There's always been times where it's been really hard to get commitments for people to come to Mountain View. All of you that are here right now are answered prayer, whether you realize it or not. And we spent a lot of time in dean meetings and admin meetings praying for nurses, leaders of departments, staff, girls, guys, whatever the current need is that's pressing on us the most. We spent a lot of time praying for that. Shouldn't we have seen enough to be at peace by now when the needs come up and they're not getting met? You know what I mean? Shouldn't the faith somehow have built up enough now that as the new needs show up, we have just like more and more confidence just kind of rising up within us that, yeah, it's tough right now, but we know God's going to provide. You would think so. But somehow we still have a hard time believing that God will meet the needs for today and tomorrow, even though he's met the needs from yesterday. We talk about people that have a lot of faith. George Mueller ran an orphanage on 
basically nothing but faith that God would continue to provide for what they needed. Did you ever doubt? Did you ever sit there and wonder, okay, we don't have anything in the pantry for breakfast this morning for these kids, but we trust that God will provide, and we're not going to give you breakfast. You think you ever thought of that? How many miracles would it take for you to finally come to a place where you stop doubting? What about if you saw a miracle that was obvious? Like, you saw it, everybody else around you saw it, there was no question about it, this was God at work, clearly. God, whatever it was, do you think that would do it for you? Or how many times would it take for that to happen before it did it for you? What about if God turned the sun off? For three days or decimated the nation that was holding you captive like he did for the Israelites like he did for the Israelites in Egypt what if he parted the Red Sea for you how long do you think that would last well I can tell you how long it lasted for the Israelites it lasted about three days and you're like ah no that would last longer than three days I could probably get at least three months of mileage out of miracles like that Three days. You know why? Because it turns out the desert still sucks. And it's still hot. And it's still really thirsty. And it just isn't all that much fun. Even though God did all of those things last month, it isn't enough for right now, because right now I still have needs. And when you're in that situation, you can chalk it up to the sovereignty of God and say, well, this is just how it is. God obviously chose this path for me, and I need to surrender myself to it. Or you can torment yourself with figuring out how and why this is your fault and try to live with the unbearable weight of responsibility and guilt that that's going to place on you. Because neither of those answers is going to bring peace to you or recognize the cry of your heart. So we've been looking at the life of Jesus. Why is his story so important? John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God chose the Greek word logos to say, or sorry, John chose the Greek word logos to describe God. Logos means um, definition, it's that which defines. So if I told you, I'm going to explain God to you this, you, you group of heathens that have never heard of this God who I'm talking about, I'm going to say, well, our God is the Word. And they would say, what does that mean? But just a little later in John, in chapter 14, or sorry, verse 14 of chapter 1, John goes on to write this, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what that means? I think that's quite possibly the most powerful verse in Scripture. You know why? Because all of the longings that we have to see and experience the face of God. Revelation talks about this in Revelation 21. It says, they will see his face. Can you imagine what that moment will be like? When all of the longings that you've had for a father who knows you intimately, who is able to heal all your diseases, wipe away every tear from your eyes and you're going to look at him and John chapter 1 tells us we got to see him 
Word was made flesh. That God that was there at the beginning became a human being and lived with us, and we got to see what God is like. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we're not just seeing stories about a man who went about doing good and doing miracles. We get to see what happens when God comes to live with man. That's why the stories of Jesus are important, because we want to know what God is like. That's where we look. The question is, how did Jesus interact with those who struggled to believe and trust? Because it's easy to say, well, yes, I believe. What about when you're in the fire with no indication that things are ever going to get better? What does it mean to believe then? Mark chapter 9. One of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. And wherever, it's, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus invited his father to believe. Why did he bother asking the question? Why did he just tell the evil spirit to come out and dunk with? Why did he look at the father and say, do you have faith? You notice what the father says? He says, yes, but no, because I'm not really sure that you can do anything about this. Imagine telling God that when he shows up sometime. You're standing in front of God incarnate with your difficult situation, and he asks you, do you believe that I can help you? And you say, I'm not sure. Would you have the courage to be that honest with yourself and God about how you really feel and say, I'd like to believe, but all the evidence points to the contrary. And I'm not really sure that you can do anything about this. What does it mean to believe? What indeed does it mean to believe? A couple of examples from the New Testament, or from the Old Testament. Before there was a nation of Israelites with an Exodus story, there was a man named Jacob. Jacob had a rough life. Things didn't go that well for him. When he was growing up, his dad liked his older brother more than he did. Esau got the affirmation, and Jacob stayed at home with mom. His parents didn't communicate very well. He knew about this covenant business. I'm sure Isaac and maybe Abraham had told him about the covenants that had been made and how God had chosen them to be his people and what was going to happen to them. But I suspect Jacob didn't really know if God could be trusted or not. 
He had to run away from home because he cheated his brother and his dad and was afraid for his life. Jacob had a rich history, rich history of running from his problems instead of facing them. And things didn't get much better after he left home. He thought he was marrying one woman. Two weeks later, he ends up with four. They didn't get along. Their children didn't get along. His relationship with Laban was getting worse by the day. And he still had questions about this God who was supposedly going to bless him. This happened at Bethel when Jacob was running away from Esau on his way up north to Haran to meet his uncle. And he slept one night and he saw a ladder reaching to heaven. Following that dream, the next morning he takes the stone and he sets it up and pours oil on it. And then he says this. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Statement of faith? Pretty big if at the front of that sentence, isn't there? That's not really a statement of faith. That's a test. And Jacob is wondering, God, are you really there? Or aren't you? Because I have this mountain that I can't move. And I'd like to know what you're going to do about that. Jacob moves to Haran for 20 years. He's on his way back. Esau is coming to meet him. I'm sure you know the story, but I'm just going to focus in on this last little bit here of that story. So Jacob has sent all his flocks and his herds and his servants and his wives and children across the river toward Esau. And he's now alone. Last person to cross the river. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him, and he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Jacob means supplanter and deceiver. And it's a pretty accurate description of how Jacob has lived his life up to this point. And God wrestled with him. I say more specifically, Jacob wrestled with God. But I think Jacob knew who he was fighting against. Can you imagine the physical wrestling with God from Jacob that night? We don't know exactly what went on, but I can imagine Jacob fighting against his maker, asking him questions. Why did you make me like this? Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you do something different? Why did you let me be so stupid? Do you like to ask God those questions? No. You know why? Because we don't think we're allowed to be that honest with him. And yet, as morning began to dawn, Jacob realizes that I need a blessing. But before he could be blessed, he had to recognize who he had become. And then God says, your name is now going to be called Israel, which means the one who wrestles with God. And your descendants are going to become known as Israelites, the people who wrestle with God. 
and Jacob is blessed with the biggest blessing he ever got in his life that day when God took away his ability to run. He couldn't go back to his old coping mechanisms anymore. He had to face reality. But I want to focus in on that idea of Jacob wrestling. God didn't condemn him for that. God blessed him for struggling with God. Job also finds himself in a miserable situation. <clears throat> he lost his wealth. His children were dead. He's covered with boils. Miserable. Cannot get comfortable. Has some wonderful friends to show up for a conversation. And things go from bad to worse. His friends gave him the same reasons religion tries to offer today. You know what they said? He must have done something wrong. Or B... You know, Job, God is sovereign, and um, he knows what he's doing, and you can just relax and let him do his thing. Interesting reading as you go through the central part of the book. How does Job respond to this? Listen to this. I like Job. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me with his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. You know what Job is saying? He's saying, I'd really like to have a conversation with God about what's going on. This ticks me off. And I want to know why this is happening. And Job goes on further and says, I can't even find him to have that conversation. He's not showing up. He ends up with something like this. But he knows the way that I take. When he, te when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Sounds a little raw, doesn't it? to talk to God like that? Some of us likely believe or we're taught that that would be wrong. It's not okay to ask questions like that of God. That means we're not believing. That means we're not having faith. That means we have doubts. God forbid we have doubts. That we just need to have this quiet, serene, surrendering, accepting faith like the bird of the storm that's sleeping. You know, kind of like Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane crying out to God quite unhappy with the path that was ahead of him. Not exactly peaceful and serene surrender, is it? Because Jesus also struggled with the path that his life took. Come back to Mark 9. What should we do when we struggle to believe? Mark 9, 23 and 24. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What should we do when we struggle to believe? Well, first off, we need to be honest with ourselves when we have questions. You ever scare yourself with the questions that pop into your head? 
and then be like, ha ha ha, no. I shove those away because that opens up a can of worms that I don't know how to deal with. The problem is our hearts still know that the questions are there. And we still don't know what to do with them. You can pretend the questions don't exist, but you know the truth. We have to be honest with ourselves about our questions. Secondly, we have to recognize that we cannot make ourselves believe. I don't know how to tell you to have more faith. We tend to think of faith as a destination, something we arrive at, where once we get to that point, we're no longer going to worry. We're just going to always be at peace. Nothing's going to bother us. We're not going to have doubts anymore. We're not going to be afraid anymore because we have just reached this ultimate level of nirvana with God where now it's all over. But in reality, faith is more like a journey that we take. And as we go on that journey, sometimes it takes a long time before we can look back and say, oh, I guess he was there and I never saw that. In the moment, often, faith is really hard to get a hold of. It's called faith because we can't see it anymore. Hebrews 11 is pretty clear about that. If we had it, if we had what we wanted, we wouldn't need to have faith. But faith means that it's not here. The other problem with viewing faith as a journey is that it means recognizing that there's always going to be some level of struggle and doubt that I have to deal with. When really I just want some answers. Third thing I see from the father of the child is that we have to be honest with God when we have questions and doubts. You see, God is not hurt, upset, or angered when you struggle and when you have questions. Actually, he's honored when you tell him how you feel. What do we find when we wrestle with God? Not usually answers, I'm afraid. What do we find when we wrestle with God? It took Jacob years years before he could look back on his life and say that, you know what, God was there with me. When Jacob and uh, his family moved to Egypt, Joseph brings Jacob and some of his brothers before Pharaoh, and um, Jacob's talking to Pharaoh, and this is what he says. He says, few and evil have been my days, and they have not attained to the days of my forefathers. This is an old guy by this point, and he's looking back and saying, you know, it's pretty rough. But all the way at the end of Jacob's life, some seven years later, something like that, Jacob calls Joseph before him, because or Joseph comes to Jacob because Jacob is dying. And Jacob makes this statement to Joseph. He says, the God of my fathers, before whom my, before whom my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, walked, he says, the God who shepherded me all my life long until this day. Finally, on his deathbed, Jacob recognized that all along there was a hand that was guiding his life. It took a long time for him to be able to see that. <clears throat> Job also got a response from God. God answered Job, uh, Job and his questions and goes on this long diatribe, and then Job responds with this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no farther. 
Job had an awful lot to say up until the point that God showed up. He goes on to say this. This is all the way in the end of the book of Job. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, the interesting thing about Job repenting in dust and ashes is that's already where he was. Because when God responds to him, Job is still sitting there in the pit or around the fire or wherever he was, covered in filth, covered in boils, no children, no flocks and herds, no nothing. His situation hadn't changed yet. But he had an encounter with God and said, you know what, I don't have to have the answers because now I know. Job went from needing answers to realizing the presence, that the presence of God was enough. But here's the funny part about Job. God never rebuked him for what he said. All the chapters that are filled with Job complaining, wanting an audience with God, lashing back at his friends, wishing he were dead, all of those things, God never utters a word about that. It does say, immediately following this passage in Job 41, that God was angry with Job's three friends because A, they tried to justify God and speak for him, and B, because they lashed out at Job when Job had done nothing wrong. God did not condemn Job for wrestling. I love this quote by Jonathan Sachs. Better the protests of Job than the acceptance of fate on the part of his friends. See, part of what it means to wrestle with God is that we're not okay with the brokenness of the world. Jonathan Sachs would say that's what it means to be a Jew. It means the refusal to accept when things are not as they should be and the cry for those things to be made right. It's not just some flippant, well, you know, hey, that's just how it is. Deal with it. It's no, this must change. And I am not okay with it being this way. Back to Mark chapter 9. The father tells Jesus, I believe, but not very much. What happens when you say that to the light of the world? In the case of the father, his son was healed. But the father was also accepted. In spite of his lack of belief, in spite of his struggle, he realized that our Savior is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's a quote that I want to read for you from Lord of the Rings in conclusion. As I think about walking in darkness and how we so often struggle to see light and to see beyond what's going on right now, close with this. Probably not Sam, one of the main characters in the book. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked out on the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. 
Shadow is only a passing thing. Just for your attention. <laughs> 